Chapter Twelve of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twelve. Law seeks vengeance. Swinging back through the jungle in a wide circle, the ape-man came to the river at another point, drank and took to the trees again and while he hunted, all oblivious of his past and careless of his future, there came through the dark jungles and the open park-like places and across the wide meadows where grazed the countless herbivora of the mysterious continent a weird and terrible caravan in search of him. There were fifty frightful men with hairy bodies and gnarled and crooked legs. They were armed with knives and great bludgeons, and at their head marched an almost naked woman, beautiful beyond compare it was law of opar high priestess of the flaming god and fifty of her horrid priests searching for the purloiner of the sacred sacrificial knife never before had law passed beyond the crumbling outer walls of opar but never before had need been so insistent the sacred knife was gone Handed down through countless ages, it had come to her as a heritage and an insignia of her religious office and regal authority from some long-dead progenitor of lost and forgotten Atlantis. The loss of the crown jewels or the great seal of England could have brought no greater consternation to a British king than did the pilfering of the sacred knife bring to law the Oparian queen and high priestess of the degraded remnants of the oldest civilization upon earth. When Atlantis, with all her mighty cities and her cultivated fields and her great commerce and culture and riches, sank into the sea long ages since, she took with her all but a handful of her colonists working the vast gold mines of central africa from these and their degraded slaves and a later intermixture of the blood of the anthropoids sprung the gnarled men of opar but by some queer freak of fate aided by natural selection the old atlantean strain had remained pure and undegraded in the females descended from a single princess of the royal house of atlantis who had been in opar at the time of the great catastrophe such was law burning with white anger was the high priestess her heart a seething molten mass of hatred for tarzan of the apes the zeal of the religious fanatic whose altar has been desecrated was triply enhanced by the rage of a woman scorned twice had she thrown her heart at the feet of the godlike ape-man and twice had she been repulsed la knew that she was beautiful and she was beautiful not by the standards of prehistoric atlantis alone but by those of modern times was la physically a creature of perfection before Tarzan came that first time to Opar, La had never seen a human male other than the grotesque and knotted men of her clan. With one of these she must mate sooner or later that the direct line of high priestesses might not be broken, unless fate should bring other men to Opar. Before Tarzan came upon his first visit, La had had no thought that such men as he existed, for she knew only her hideous little priests and the bulls of the tribe of great anthropoids that had dwelt from time immemorial in and about Opar, until they had come to be looked upon almost as equals by the Oparians. Among the legends of Opar were tales of godlike men of the olden time, and of black men who had come more recently 
but these latter had been enemies who killed and robbed. And, too, these legends always held forth the hope that some day that nameless continent from which their race had sprung would rise once more out of the sea, and with slaves at the long sweeps would send her carven, gold-picked galleys forth to succor the long-exiled colonists. The coming of Tarzan had aroused within Law's breast the wild hope that at last the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy was at hand, but more strongly still had it aroused the hot fires of love in a heart that never otherwise would have known the meaning of that all-consuming passion, for such a wondrous creature as Law could never have felt love for any of the repulsive priests of Opar. Custom, duty, and religious zeal might have commanded the union, but there could have been no love on Law's part. She had grown to young womanhood a cold and heartless creature, daughter of a thousand other cold, heartless, beautiful women who had never known love. And so, when love came to her, it liberated all the pent passions of a thousand generations, transforming law into a pulsing, throbbing volcano of desire, and with desire thwarted, this great force of love and gentleness and sacrifice was transmuted by its own fires into one of hatred and revenge. It was in a state of mind superinduced by these conditions that Law led forth her jabbering company to retrieve the sacred emblem of her high office and wreak vengeance upon the author of her wrongs. To Werper she gave little thought. The fact that the knife had been in his hand when it departed from Opar brought down no thoughts of vengeance upon his head. Of course he should be slain when captured, but his death would give Law no pleasure. She looked for that in the contemplated death agonies of Tarzan. He should be tortured, his should be a slow and frightful death, his punishment should be adequate to the immensity of his crime. He had wrested the sacred knife from law, he had lain sacrilegious hands upon the high priestess of the flaming god, he had desecrated the altar and the temple, for these things he should die. But he had scorned the love of law, the woman, and for this he should die horribly with great anguish. The march of Law and her priests was not without its adventures. Unused were these to the ways of the jungle, since seldom did any venture forth from behind Opar's crumbling walls, yet their very numbers protected them, and so they came without fatalities far along the trail of Tarzan and Werper. Three great apes accompanied them, and to these was delegated the business of tracking the quarry, a feat beyond the senses of the Oparians. Law commanded. She arranged the order of march. She selected the camps. She set the hour for halting, and the hour for resuming, and though she was inexperienced in such matters, her native intelligence was so far above that of the men or the apes that she did better than they could have done. She was a hard taskmaster, too, for she looked down with loathing and contempt upon the misshapen creatures amongst which cruel fate had thrown her, and to some extent vented upon them her dissatisfaction and her thwarted love. She made them build her a strong protection and shelter each night, and keep a great fire burning before it from dusk to dawn. When she tired of walking, they were forced to carry her upon an improvised litter, nor did one dare to question her authority or her right to such services. In fact, they did not question either. To them she was a goddess, and each loved her, and each hoped that he would be chosen as her mate. So they slaved for her, 
and bore the stinging lash of her displeasure and the habitually haughty disdain of her manner without a murmur. For many days they marched, the apes following the trail easily and going a little distance ahead of the body of the caravan that they might warn the others of impending danger. It was during a noonday halt, while all were lying resting after a tiresome march, that one of the apes rose suddenly and sniffed the breeze. In a low guttural he cautioned the others to silence, and a moment later was swinging quietly upwind into the jungle. Law and the priests gathered silently together, the hideous little men fingering their knives and bludgeons, and awaited the return of the shaggy anthropoid. Nor had they long to wait before they saw him emerge from a leafy thicket and approach them. Straight to law he came, and in the language of the great apes, which was also the language of decadent Opar, he addressed her. The great Tarmangani lies asleep there, he said, pointing in the direction from which he had just come. Come, and we can kill him. Do not kill him, commanded law in cold tones. Bring the great Tarmangani to me alive and unhurt. The vengeance is Law's. Go, but make no sound. And she waved her hands to include all her followers. Cautiously the weird party crept through the jungle in the wake of the great ape until at last he halted them with a raised hand and pointed upward and a little ahead. There they saw the giant form of the ape-man stretched along a low bough, and even in sleep one hand grasped a stout limb, and one strong brown leg reached out and overlapped another. At ease lay Tarzan of the apes, sleeping heavily upon a full stomach, and dreaming of Numa the lion, and Horta the boar, and other creatures of the jungle. No intimation of danger assailed the dormant faculties of the ape-man. He saw no crouching hairy figures upon the ground beneath him, nor the three apes that swung quietly into the tree beside him. The first intimation of danger that came to Tarzan was the impact of three bodies as the three apes leaped upon him and hurled him to the ground, where he alighted half-stunned beneath their combined weight and was immediately set upon by the fifty hairy men, or as many of them as could, swarm upon his person. Instantly the ape-man became the center of a whirling, striking, biting maelstrom of horror. He fought nobly but the odds against him were too great. Slowly they overcame him, though there was scarce one of them that did not feel the weight of his mighty fist or the rending of his fangs. End of chapter 12